0: Hi everyone, and welcome to The Link Podcast, the industry's link to learn, innovate news and knowledge in global supply chain intelligence, hosted by Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive. We cover everything from transportation and warehousing trends and new technologies, to food safety and sustainability impacting today's supply chains. I'm Brielle Jekyll, Associate Editor of Food Logistics and SDCE, and we are continuing this month's theme of spirits and alcohol distribution with an exciting interview with Larry Combs, who is the General Manager of the Jack Daniels Distillery. So you'll get an inside look at what it really takes to uh, distribute the top-selling whiskey in the world, all distilled from one location. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. I am here with Larry Combs, who is the Senior Vice President and Global Manager of Jack Daniel's uh, Global Supply Chain. Hi, Larry. Thank you for, so much for coming on with me today.
1: Hello, Brielle. really appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to learn more about the logistics process in, um, you know, the transportation of Jack Daniels, because you think about, you know, you get your, your bottle, you think about the distilling process, but then what happens in between, you know, when I'm at the liquor store buying my bottle or, or getting it to the, to the bar, you know, things like that. I, it's very interesting to get to see the inside of how the process works.
1: I'm happy to talk about it.
0: So first, I want to ask, what are some surprising things that, you know, maybe the average person or even the average supply chain worker wouldn't really know in terms of how the logistic process works for Jack Daniels?
1: Sure. There's two things that come to mind with that question that I think probably surprises most people if they were to stop and think about it or or once they learn about it. And the first is, um, you know, we're proud that Jack Daniels is now the best selling whiskey in the world. But I think it still often surprises people when they learn that despite that, every drop of it is still made in this small little town in in the middle of Tennessee, Lynchburg. Um, And so essentially from there, uh, we ship to 177 countries around the world. So, and we were able to take advantage of that kind of scale. Um, and we run a really efficient operation, and we have one of the best workforces in the world. So it lets us have one of the more efficient plants. I think the second thing that um, comes as a surprise to people is the horizon of the planning process. So I'll just start with, um, from our supply chain, we're vertically integrated. So um, we're the only major distiller that actually makes our own barrels. It's a very important part of our process. 50% 50% of our flavor and all of our color comes from those barrels. And if I go back to the point that we're buying the logs from the loggers to supply our own internal mills, um, where we produce the pieces and parts that we assemble into a barrel that starts about six to nine years before the whiskey is actually in the bottle. So when you think about the complexities around kind of forecasting, planning, and being able to meet supply, I think that is really a surprise to most people.
0: Yeah, I'm one of the very lucky people who has actually been able to see the process on site in Tennessee. And it's, it still amazes me how it's able to be one location and still um, produce so much um, whiskey for the world. Um, so, how are you able to store all, all of the whiskey you know, that needs to be um, shipped all over the world?
1: So I'll cover a couple of areas. So in terms of storage, so one way we think about storage, you think about all of those barrels, right? And the fact that um, to be Jack Daniels, once we fill that barrel, it's got to mature for about four to eight years, depending on the product. And so to do that, we're actually building one or two warehouses a year. They're all surrounding Lynchburg, Tennessee. And we currently have nearly 100 warehouses um, in and around the distillery. And those warehouses hold, you know, a few million barrels of whiskey. So that's one of the things that um, in, in terms of the storage and the specific conditions that we have to think about to make sure that, you know, like Jack Daniels um, said, every day we make it, we'll make it the best we can. And to do that, we've, we've got to keep a close eye on, on how that product matures and ages. And, and so that no matter where you happen to be in the world, if you get a bottle of Jack Daniels, it's going to be exactly what you expect. Um, from my perspective one of the best products on earth um, in terms of the actual inventory like we just talked about being the best-selling whiskey and producing it all in Lynchburg um, one of the things that we're actually able to do is um, about 65 percent of our volume is outside the U.S. these days and so we've set up our production operations so that about one-third of what we produce never touches the floor in distribute or in our distribution center in Lynchburg So it essentially goes right from the end of the line onto a truck, um, generally to a rail terminal and to um, one of the East or West Coast ports to be sent around the world. And so with that, um, we're actually able to turn our inventory really, I think probably industry best um, 35 times a year. So we actually, relative to the size of our brand and total of what we produce, we have a relatively small storage on site.
0: Wow, that's surprising that you're able to to not have it touch the floor like that. That's something I haven't actually heard of before. Um, do you have any automation that helps that process?
1: Uh, yeah, we have a fairly sophisticated warehouse management system. And part of what most, I would say 80% of what we produce at Jack is produced to order. And so that's part of how we can essentially um, not let a good percentage of it ever touch the floor, right? So generally from the time an order is received, it's seven to 10 days before it's um, being shipped out of the plant. So it'll get scheduled on the line. It'll get run and a significant portion of that volume will go right onto a container. So in terms of that degree of automation, that's what I would say facilitates it the most is really that order management producing to order, not producing to inventory, and having that synced up enough so that we're able to um, efficiently move that off-site.
0: And now with moving all of this product from state to state and, um, you know, from country to country, how are you able to deal with state to state and, you know, country to country regulations?
1: Yeah, so state to state is probably a little easier for us in the sense that the in the U.S., it's a three-tier system. So we're not... Um, allowed by law to distribute directly to retail. And so when we consider like the regional variations, you know, various state laws and distribution models, we work um, with key strategic um, third-party distributors around the country. And so they will have expertise in terms of the specific distribution from, you know, um, to retail once we deliver the product to them. Um, there are some state-specific requirements around, um, labeling and a few other things that we have built up, you know, pretty significant expertise in house to where we handle that. I think when we get outside the U S where that gets a bit more complicated is there's, there's various distribution models, right? There are many countries we can own our own distribution, which we, we quite often do. Um, but where the complexity comes in and, and I'll I'll share an example with you, um, is for our Jack Daniels black label, we have 170 different back labels. And that that is more or less um, because there's 170 different countries. So almost every country will have different requirements in terms of font size, what type of information has to be on the label, um, and so on. And so that adds a degree of complexity that we have um, really improved the automation on our lines. If you think about the The number of different labels and how they are so country specific to ensure that the right order has the right label and is going to the right place. And and so we've invested quite a bit in visual management systems and vision systems to help automate that and kind of ensure that quality. Um, because one of the last things we want to do is put uh, a product in the market with a different country's back label, because in, in most markets, that would be considered a legal product. And so we put quite a bit of effort into that, but um, especially probably, I'd say, in the last five to seven years, really relying on technology to make that ever more efficient.
0: Right. I can't imagine the, the, all the intricacies that go into the different labeling that has to go into place in the different countries and states. It's, that's crazy. So now, how are you able to, I would say that this is a two-fold question, because I want to go back to COVID specifically, because as we know, everyone, sh- all the models shifted and everyone was home and the bars and restaurants were closed. How were you able, and I know that there was a lot of an um, in, in increase in demand because people had nothing to do but drink, um, I guess. That's what a lot of the reports say. Um So how are you able to deal with that sudden shift in demand um, that came out of nowhere, essentially? And then also, how do you manage demand shifts in general?
1: Right. Um, It it was a particular challenge right, heading into COVID. None of us really knew what was going to happen. And um, not only was volume up overall for us about 20 to 25 percent, because apparently people were drinking quite a bit, but we were happy. They seemed to be choosing to drink Jack Daniels. But probably one of the more dramatic shifts, as you can imagine, was in kind of format and, and occasion is that you know, basically, if you look at our liter size bottle, that's typically um, bar size. So like bars and restaurants and, and that volume dropped with when every state and country went into shutdown, it dropped by more than 80 percent. Um, but on the flip side of that, our large format 175 liter bottle um, which is the bottle you're probably going to take home if you go to the liquor store, and if you think about what you're going to do at home, right? What's what's one of the easiest cocktails you can make? Right. Right. Jack and Coke. <laughs> Jack and Coke, and so our 1.75 liter bottle. At the same time that liters nearly bottomed out, increased nearly 100 percent, right, and so. I think one thing that's helpful for us in terms of managing that and how we manage shifts in demand in general, because oftentimes what we will see is it'll be more kind of in format and size by market, right, Um, or or unplanned growth spurts or, or promotions and things of that nature. But what we were able to do during COVID is a nice thing being largely in a glass bottle. And then when you look at glass supply, Um, Glass companies think of, they think in tonnage and that's how they rate their capacity. So our total tonnage of glass, despite those huge swings did not change all that dramatically. And essentially, you're able to take your glass mold that, you know, um, take your one liter um, mold off that furnace and add a second uh, 175 liter mold and essentially keep up with that pretty extreme shift in demand. So we were able to do that pretty easily without missing a beat. In terms of the overall increase in demand at 20 to 30 percent, we plan on the whiskey supply side a cushion in our total supply just for this type of occasion. And then with our glass companies for that unexpected demand and, and everyone was seeing it, we've really worked hard over the years to have contingency capacity built into those agreements. So that essentially um, we had additional molds sitting at other of their facilities that could be activated in, in circumstances like this when we needed. So, so I was pretty um, proud of the team that we were able to you know, activate those contingency plans and they worked, that's always a good thing. Um, and we were able to keep all of our, our team members you know, working and working safely. Um, So we we have not missed a single day of production at Jack Daniels due to COVID. And that's probably another key in terms of um, being able to meet those huge shifts, because we do have to have flexibility in terms of if we need to produce through the weekends, um, run additional overtime, things of that nature to meet that demand.
0: So Okay. Now then, how do you how how are you able to handle the different demands like throughout the year? If, if COVID say COVID never existed, it, you know, Christmas is coming, I guess you prepare because you know that people are going to be gifting more or or you just kind of handle it the same way you handled COVID?
1: No, we build a, we build a full year plan. So the, the good thing is Jack is, is in the developed world, a fairly mature brand. And so it's, a healthy growing brand, but fairly predictable from a seasonality perspective, right? So so we can build our staffing models around that. And so we call it You know, OND is our peak season—October, November, December—and it's for exactly the reasons you mentioned. Is that is when probably eighty percent of our total gift pack volume is produced and shipped. And so we actually have a special facility on site that we ramp up to be able to meet that particular demand in terms of increasing gifts. And then in terms of the Mm seasonal demand, we we basically have locked in X number of Saturdays and Sundays through OND to meet that.
0: Oh, OK. Um, and I, you mentioned the, the glass and that that is one of the things you think about a lot with um, alcohol distribution. How are you able to make sure like is it often that bottles break or, or have you do you have like such um, processes in place that you pr- you can protect them easier? Like how, how are you able to protect them when you're moving so much
1: Yeah, so two ways. So we look at, um, we try to strike the right balance. So Jack Daniels was was doing it before it was fashionable, but we started lightweighting all of our glass packages um, in the early 90s. And and that's both an economic win as as well as if you think about from a sustainability perspective and your environmental impact, eliminating all that weight from freight. But we're careful to, um, in terms of when we redesign the structure, to make it sturdy enough so that breakage is generally isn't an issue in transport, right? Because uh, unlike a, a lot of brands, we are shipping every one of those bottles from Lynchburg um, and all around the world. And so what we've done over probably the last, I'd say 10 to 15 years is really raise the level of sophistication in that design. So we do, you know, we build finite element analysis models. It's, it's basically an engineering tool to we really build a virtual bottle and then we can test that bottle in any number of scenarios So that uh, we can keep that breakage threshold to an absolute minimum while keeping the structure strong while we continue to lightweight it. So that's one way that we have approached it. The second thing is really how do you design the shipper case that the product goes in, right? The the, uh, structure of the shipper case, I I, I know it looks like a simple cardboard box, but there's a fair amount of work that goes into it. Um, you know, the material and strength of the dividers that go into the bottles by pack size. You know, we've even been able to move certain sizes to where by working on that bottle structure, we've been able to eliminate the cardboard dividers and not increase breakage. So, So we just have this, what I would say, it's one of our continuous improvement efforts is anytime we can eliminate the use of the material, and or packages, we can. But to your point, ensuring that the quality, both in transit as well as in in use, because you think about where you'll often find Jack Daniels. You know, it, it's it's uh, one of the most popular brands in the world. In fact, it's it's rarefied air. It's one of those few products that's more than twenty dollars a bottle, but you might find it in the well around the world, right? Because it, it's it's such an iconic brand, and that's a that's a pretty rough spot for a bottle to find itself. As <laughs> so, with, that, with that, bartender our, our is pulling a bottle out and he slams it back down the well eight times out of 10, he's, he's bouncing off the bottle next to it. And so I, that's the other right. type of thing we, we have to think about in terms of that, that package design and, and breakage as well.
0: Well, I think that's all I have time for today. Um, that was really, really interesting, but I have one more question that I have to ask before we go. I do just have to ask, what is your go-to Jack drink? Or like- okay.
1: I've got two. <laughs> so, if i want to sit and enjoy what i think is our best that's going to be jack daniels single barrel with a cube of ice mm-hmm. and if i'm out and it's pre-dinner or, or relaxing later in the night it can't be the uh, manhattan made with our jack daniels single barrel rye so
0: very nice well thank you again um and um i'd love to speak to you again and get some more insight maybe if any your stories that we have coming up. Um, love to feature you.
1: No, sounds great. Uh, one of my favorite things is to talk about Jack Daniels. It's usually hard to shut me up, but I <laughs> always appreciate the opportunity.
0: Okay, thank you everyone for listening to today's episode and for Larry for coming on the show. Tune in every Tuesday for our episodes of Link by Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive. And do not forget to hit subscribe on the Apple, Spotify, and Google playlist apps so you never miss an episode.